St. Clair. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my two other incredible, fabulous, beautiful co-hosts. Vincent Vincent. <laughs> Daphne Malpitano. <laughs> God damn it. I love it. It sounded simple to you guys if you're just listening, but there was a fucking jig that went to it that none of us were prepared Vincent for. Vincent Vincent. <laughs> you're, it's like an infomercial for a pro- product. Like an 8-bit Mario brother doing it. Or you can see, like, an evil little demon child in a horror movie doing it. <laughs> like, menacingly. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know. You're like, oh, no. No, 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 no. Vincent Vincent. None of that is safe since Insidious, I swear to God. When they had that little God. fucking, that kid who looked like he was on the Newsies, but he was in black and white. And yeah, he was, that was creepy. tap dancing to tiptoe through the tulips. That yeah. was the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I was like, absolutely not. Burn the house down. Do not go back in. Rosebeard, you're too pretty for this. Get out of there. <laughs> So, anyway, hi! Speaking of being pretty, <laughs> Hello. this is our episode on Aphrodite! It's me, y'all, Aphrodite! Hi! <laughs> Everybody listen- says that Zeus is my daddy, but that's not true at all. That was them goddamn Hellenic people coming through, trying to act like I didn't predate them. Hi! Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you listen to the Amphorosode, you already know what to do every time you hear the word Amphrodite. Aphrodite. <laughs> there it is. Twinkle, twinkle. <laughs> twinkle, twinkle. <laughs> That's it. Um, so, hi. So, yeah, we're going to just jump right in, I think. Um, yeah. So, let's talk. We got a lot to talk about today. So, let's start off, as we always do, with Origins. And as fate would have it, all three of them. We have a choose your own adventure. I like it when we have these so early on in the in the game. Yeah, wakes you up, keeps your blood flowing. <laughs> yeah. So we have Hesiod and Homer first. Then we have how she was syncretized with Astarte, as told by Pseudo-Hygienus. And then we have the finale, which is Cicero, the like Roman rhetorician and writer, who basically did like a, a quick rundown of all of them and how they compared and contrasted. So Hesiod's telling in the Theogony is that Aphrodite was born of Uranus's severed genitals and sea foam. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Kerplunk. That's gross. Homer says that Aphrodite was born of Zeus and Dion. Warwick. Mm. Yeah, which, like, you know, what's that about? As we've, I kind of spoiled this very early on in our show, but, like, yeah, no, Dion is not actually a thing. It's, like, a blank placeholder. It's a generic. It literally just means goddess. Like, it doesn't, there's nothing there. Um, (laughs) In in fact, she's, it's sometimes even an epithet for Aphrodite, and it just means goddess. Like, So don't don't choose that adventure. She's her own mom. It's the dead end. <laughs> so, and then we have syncretized with Astarte. Now I'm quoting from Pseudo-Hygienus, who was a Roman mythographer, circa 2nd century AD. Quote, into the Euphrates River, an egg of wonderful size is said to have fallen, which the fish <laughs> rolled to the bank. Doves sat on it, and when it was heated, it hatched out Venus, Astarte, the Syrian Aphrodite. 
who was later called the Syrian goddess or Dea Syria. Since she excelled the rest in justice and uprightness by a favor granted by Zeus, the fish were put among the number of the stars. And because of this, the Syrians do not eat fish or doves, considering them as gods. Huh. Yeah. And lastly, we have Cicero, who does the explanation of competing origins, a Roman rhetorician writing around circa first century BC. Basically, how he like enumerates the rival cult traditions about Aphrodite, sourced from different regions, he says, quote, The first Venus, Aphrodite, is the daughter of Caelus, Sky, Oranos, and Deus, Day, Hemera. So this is supposedly Oranos and Hemera had her. Mm-hmm. I have seen her temple at Elis. The second was engendered from the sea foam, and as we are told, became the mother by Mercurius Hermes of the second Cupidus love Eros. The third is the daughter of Zeus and Dion, who wedded Hephaestus, but who is said to have been the mother of Anteros by Ares. The fourth we obtained from Syria and Cyprus and is called Astarte. It is recorded that she married Adonis. So, as you can see, we know two things. One, she predates the Greeks, as we know them, and that she had cults far and wide, and that she has uncertain origins because everybody tried to lay claim to her in some way, shape, or form. And she had a lot of goddesses who she was not similar to, but analogous to in her roles, and also that she was tied to the planet Venus. So you could say... uh she got around Badoom. <laughs> my god vincent oh, i just love it when you, you tell them slut shaming <laughs> jokes no they just tickle me in my inner parts i meant she was a prodigious traveler uh-huh so that's let's, the um, whole mediterranean world let's tackle everybody's favorite part your initial thoughts on aphrodite what do you think what are you walking into this episode what are your preconceived notions what do you think about her as a kid were you team Aphrodite? Were you not? What's the deal? Honestly, fear and glory. Scared of her, but also that's cool. Like, super cool, but very much so like, you know what? Seems like very easy to not be in good graces. Mm. Um, in which case, let's just, you know, we'll just keep a, a salute distance. <laughs> She's too girly for me. I'm going to fix that for you in this yeah, episode. Yeah, I feel like you yeah. probably are, which is good. But I mean, like, I my, my impressions of her were, like, too gr- Like, I just, I liked her fine, but I, like, just wasn't that into her. Like, I didn't focus on her, really. Which I think, obviously, we can say was probably due to the way that she was, like, characterized in, like, art. and drawn. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, that my first impressions of her were, like, at a museum. So, yeah. I mean, that is definitely, like, the uber-feminine, like, for some reason, mostly naked like heavy mm. renaissance imagery yeah, yeah which i which i think is beautiful like and meant a lot like but it reminded me of my mom and in a good way but like wasn't something i really could access mm. so just didn't feel i was just like i don't know she's like womanly and i'm a little ragamuffin and i don't get it <laughs> <laughs> yes my mom has really well she doesn't anymore but she just got her hair but she always had really really super long hair and is like really feminine and like it's just she my mom is Aphrodite. Yes. And probably um, like scary Aphrodite too. I love that. My mom's very tough, yeah. but very feminine. I feel like to that point too, like when I think of Aphrodite, it's much more like rose tones, mm. which is very different from how I think about Venus. Even mm. before like we kind of like 
go we like you know started doing this and kind of got like a lot more familiar with how this stuff works out it's yeah. just like venus always did i mean you know maybe it's because it's the color of venus but it's like gave me a, like a much greener kind of like hmm. like emerald opulence rather than like the rose and gold kind of opulence of aphrodite I get emerald is ruled by venus oh well there, oh. there it is yeah oh. emerald as is malachite hmm. oh yeah those are hmm. two that are definitely ruled by venus uh gold is not ruled by venus it's ruled by the sun copper oh. is the sacred metal of venus that's um, probably even closer than gold than what I was thinking of. Because it's just like yeah, the red that burnished, yeah. yeah, that yeah. as well as with like, uh, and also like if you think about the color of rose gold, it's basically rose the color gold. Of copper. I was gonna yeah. say, yeah, rose gold oh, is. It's my. It's one of my favorite colors. Same, so good. Same, it's so good. <laughs> it's amazing. Rose gold aesthetic. <laughs> we are very into rose gold on this podcast. Apparently, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at the traditional glyphs for the planets, each one of them represents something that has to do with the original god they were named after. And so everybody thinks like, oh, that's just the symbol for female. And it's like, well, that's what it became later on. But originally yeah. it was actually supposed to be a hand mirror. And yeah. in ancient Mediterranean times, most hand mirrors were crafted out of bum, ba -dum, bum, 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 copper. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So if you need more fun facts about alchemy Everything. and astrology I'm yeah. always here um, so what do we think Aphrodite is in charge of what is her domain what is her purview what's her job aesthetics beauty <laughs> okay love mm -hmm. probably some weird fucked up animal that makes no sense <laughs> we'll get there cause they all have that yeah love in general passion uh like wanting things, I don't know, desire. Is that desire. Yeah, desire. Okay. Hopefully, something more exciting, um, like something more passionate in terms of like getting something, like a little more direct. I don't know, like not ambition, but like I don't know. I think we're circling the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's um, like something. You know, roses. Uh, <laughs> okay, how about sex? Oh yeah, I just kind of lumped that. I mean, you know, I lumped that in with passion. Yeah, I guess I did too. It's like our desire. We were going. We were going sex. old school. Love. Not all. Not the all. Physical acts of love. Not all sex is passionate, y'all. Sometimes you just got to pay the bills. Wait, is she and also desire. the god of like non-passionate sex? <laughs> Transactional <laughs> sex. Yeah, in a lot of ways, yes. She was the sacred goddess of sex workers. Um, well, that yeah. There you go. Yeah, um, and also procreation as opposed to just sex, mm. um, and oh. above all, sort of honestly, pleasure. In any way that you can think of pleasure. I mean, one of her most famous epithets is laughter loving. Mm -hmm. You know, like, so there's there's a whole thing of, like, enjoy, enjoyment. That, that is, is really there. close to live, laugh, love, though. Yeah. Live, laugh, love, and lavender. Yeah. yeah. It's a little too close. <laughs> Rose gold. You're not selling um, me on her yet. <laughs> <laughs> Depictions. We kind of mentioned this. What does she look like to you? Like, nakedy. Mm -hmm. Or at least top, like kind of topless. Like I feel like she has like a, a thing that's like kind of falling off, you know? Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. Definitely. Like her dress is just kind of sliding off. Like whoops, <laughs> whatever she has on is eventually <laughs> yeah. coming off. It's just yeah, too big like, and it's just sliding off of her. But it's not my, much to begin with. My wardrobe is various states of undress with flowing cloth. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was thinking that and or uh, like I'm wearing a full dress, but I'm using my like God radiance at like 10% just to like shine through the dress. Just mm. so you know that like, I'm very naked. I'm, 
under right. here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everything's very sheer. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, like a lot of hair. Yes. Big hair yeah. situation. A lot of hair. Yes. Definitely barefoot. I don't imagine her Same. ever wearing like shoes ever. Mm-hmm. Or they'd be like very small sandals. Very minimal. So Aphrodite is almost always depicted nude, especially in more modern times. Actually, the thing about her that's the most important is not what she's wearing, but it's her pose, which tells um. us the most about her nature. Various poses actually indicated various epithets. Mm. Interesting. Oh, I know there's uh, the only one that I know, which is just going to expose me, but I've already been exposed on this podcast, um, <laughs> is uh, Aphrodite Calipigius. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew it was going to be. I mean, she, why would it be other It's than literally other? Aphrodite, like, doing, like, an Herbal Essences commercial with yeah, her, hair her hair and looking back at her back ass. Back on her butt, yeah. It's, yeah. Why would I, why would I wouldn't not like that? that? Yeah. <laughs> That's... <laughs> Fan favorite. It's laughter-loving booty queen, but yes. the, the tablet got chipped. And so that was the part that didn't make it to the translation. But you're correct. Okay, Absolutely. now you are starting to sell me on her. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, it's not. she's not always naked. This is actually the interesting thing about her. When she is clothed, her attire was always rich and brightly colored. And she would wear lots of, like, precious, ornate jewelry. Fancy. Yeah. Yeah. She also owned a magic girdle, also called a cestus, which was woven with love and desire. Hera would occasionally borrow it in order to reunite estranged spouses. Is this lingerie? Magic girdle. Yeah, it's like a corset? Um, well, no. This is ancient Greece. Well, they didn't exist yet, obviously. They didn't exist yet. So it's kind of, depending on the the (laughs) version that you look at, a cestus can oftentimes just literally be, like, like some fabric that's tied around, like, the upper waist under the breasts. Sounds like lingerie to me. To create a shape. Sounds like lingerie to me. (laughs) Proto-lingerie. And sort of, as an extension of her appearance... Out of all the gods, Aphrodite's abode may be the most beautiful. It was a stunning palace in the heavens, said to have been crafted from alabaster by Hephaestus as a wedding gift. I mean, of yes. course she has to have the, yeah, the sickest say. like crib. Like yeah. she's yeah. like, come yeah. take, a, take a tour of my awesome mansion. It's like, yeah, you, obviously you love aesthetics. She's always got this like super beautiful like alabaster palace that's pure white and clean and has tons of gold ornamentation Mm -hmm. and super lush gardens with tons of flowers and lots of animals that are very um fertile and so yeah you know you've got a lot going on there now in terms of her retinue she had eros and the erotes the carites and the and patho who we'll get to in a second but the charities or some people just call them charities because that's what it looks like we have talked about before they're the graces right mm-hmm. eros and the erotes we've also talked about so patho we'll talk about in a second that's one of her daughters attributes and iconology when you think about her what is around her what is she holding what's she doing what has she got going on definitely some flowers probably roses in there somewhere um, around her or what is she carrying oh carrying so but she's always know. standing she's often seen standing on a what like a shell yeah yeah so a scallop shell yeah uh, conch shells are also <clears throat> her thing 
Oh, is it like dolphins or something? Does she have like, like, are are there animals? Swans? Sometimes. I mean, the main things here are that she uh, has the scallop shell, conch shell, girdle, mirror, and pearl. Mirror. Um, Because this is attributes and echinology, not sacred objects and preferred offerings. So pearls make sense because she's coming out of a shell. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because she's like literally supposed to be the pearl. She's the pearl. The ultimate pearl. Aphrodite also, P.S., and I don't know of another deity who has this claim had multiple chariots. Her two primary chariots (laughs) were a chariot drawn by doves that she would travel through the air with and a chariot drawn by the fishtailed tritones. Remember them? Yeah. Yeah. To travel across the water. So okay. she just has yeah. a lot of cars. She's got like a fucking Mercedes and like a, you know. This is going back to other... the Cribs episode. She, yeah, yeah. She, this is just a Cribs episode. She just has like really swanky stuff. <laughs> I feel like this is actually turning into like the infamous Mariah Carey Cribs episode. No, like that's 100%. exactly what I'm, that's what's playing in my head. After that's what's playing in my head as well. <laughs> <laughs> Secret objects, preferred offerings. Her botanicals are myrtle, rose, apple, pomegranate, lettuce, myrrh, and anemone. I didn't know about the apple thing as well. And animals are dove, sparrow, swan, dolphin, fish, hare, swine, shellfish, cockle shells, and pearl. Swine. It's swine is the weird one. Pigs? Why is it? What? They're all like lovely, beautiful animals and then pigs. Pigs are cute. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It doesn't quite fit the profile. It's like swans and dolphins and pigs. (laughs) They always have a weird one. I'm just amazed. There's always one that seems really, like, really out of place. Well, I'll give you a little hint. They were, that was one of her taboos. Oh. That you couldn't consume pork or offer it Because to her. they're her animals. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of sacred thing. Not, this is not sacred because it's my preferred offering. This is sacred because I'm telling you it's off limits when you deal with me. I am really not being sold. I can't eat pig. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if the booty thing is going to like carry us through here, but we'll see. Lovers. So she had many lovers, right? Among them, the most like kind of common are Hephaestus, Ares, Poseidon, Hermes, Dionysus, Adonis, and Anchises. So all Anchises is her only. All of them are gods except for Anchises, and we'll get into him in just a second. Now we'll go to children. Now we have the children that she had with Ares, right? So she has Eros. We all know Eros. Mm. Then we have Pothos. So in the Erotes, just a quick rundown if you forgot about them. Pothos is the god of passionate longing, yearning, and desire, and was in certain cases the god of the, who represented like longing for a missing loved one or in grief. Uh, and Teros was the god of mutual love or requited love, and then had an alternate aspect where like they became the avenger of unrequited yeah. love. Hemeros is the god of sexual desire who accompanied Aphrodite from the moment of her birth and is said to emerge from the same shell in some of the stories. But it's still considered her kid. Uh, Yeah. It's like retinue based. So it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to explain this by saying like Ares and her had this kid. But also that's because they're literally always pictured together. So I guess that makes sense. It's kind of one of those things where you're making it all add up. Gotcha. Hedy Logos, who was everybody's favorite the first time we did the Erotes, the god of sweet talk and flattery. (laughs) (laughs) And Hymenaeus, the god of weddings and bridal hymns. Uh, of course, they had the daughter Harmonia, who we talked about last week, mm-hmm. and potentially Phobos and Demos, who we talked about last week, but I made my whole thing about how I think it's Enyo that's their mom, whatever. Right. With Hermes, she had Hermaphroditus, who we all remember. Mm-hmm. And then with Poseidon, she had a son and a daughter, Rhodos, who is the goddess and personification of the city of Rhodes, like yeah. Colossus of Rhodes. Um, Eryx, 
who's the founder and king of Eric's Sicily, who was an excellent boxer that went on to challenge Hercules and got killed in the match. Oh, fun. Wow, bold though. I mean, yeah. For under Dionysus, <laughs> we have Patho, who was the handmaiden and herald of Aphrodite. She's the goddess and personification of persuasion, seduction, and charming speech. She was depicted as a radiant woman, elegantly dressed, crowned and bejeweled, carrying a ball of twine and accompanied by her sacred dove. Patho is the embodiment of both sexual and political persuasion. She is the essential counterpart and opposite of Bia, goddess and personification of force. Remember Bia, one of the four kids of sticks that like stands around mm. Zeus's throne? Yeah. They're like very consciously put as opposites. Because hmm. huh. there's like, these are the two ways that you can do everything with vinegar or honey. Right. Right. And of course the graces. And oh, guess who else she had with Dionysus? Priapus. Oh. Wow. According to Suidas, this is from like Byzantine Greek, uh, circa 10th century AD, Priapus was conceived from Zeus and Aphrodite, but Hera, in a jealous rage, laid hands by a certain trickery on the belly of Aphrodite and readied a shapeless and ugly and over-meaty babe to be born. His mother flung it onto a mountain, a shepherd raised it up, he had genitals rising above his butt. What? <laughs> 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 mm. Over meaty, also. Wow. I just think mm-hmm. like their children very much. I don't know. Over meaty babe is a, is it could be a whole thing. Yeah. Not I, when you've watched sure. enough Invaders. Um, you it's it's. Oh uh, yeah. Oof. Yeah. So then we have Anchises and Anchises. It's I should actually I think be Anchises. Anchises comes about because remember the Age of Heroes. Mm-hmm. Remember when we did the Ages of Men and there was the Age of Heroes and we were trying to figure out, like, where the hell does, like, Hercules and Achilles and everybody else figure in? Like, why aren't there more, like, demigod heroes, right? Mm -hmm. Well, supposedly, the Age of Heroes ended definitively when Zeus decided to forbid Aphrodite from mating the gods with mortals because, like, all procreation is under her purview. And apparently it was her idea to make gods with mortals, right? Okay. (laughs) At first, she refused this order, so he made her fall in love with a mortal for the first and last time. Yeah. Aphrodite fell madly in love with a man named Anchises and even went on to bear him a son. However, their child was 100% mortal, and his name was Aeneas. So grief-stricken was she at their short lives and her need to constantly protect them at all costs that she ended the mixing of gods and mortals altogether, as well as the age of the heroic demigods, and thus began the Iron Age. That checks out. And then we have like, um, like what does what does like Aphrodite get up to? Like, what's what's an average day for Aphrodite? Well, we have the musical contest between Aphrodite and Hermes. Ptolemy told this. Uh, it's actually Ptolemy Hephaestion, which I'm pretty sure is just like a lesser Ptolemy, probably not the actual Ptolemy from the first or second century AD. Quote, Apollon, Apollo, organized funeral games, the Pythia, in honor of Python, the dragon of Delphoi. Hermes contributed to it like Aphrodite. She won and accepted as prize a zitar, which she gave later as a gift to Alexandros, which can be ter- interpreted as Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. which would make a lot of sense because he's the one who like went to South Asia. Yeah. Or Paris of Troy, which like whatever. He already got enough. <laughs> also, um, <laughs> guess who decided to try and have a weaving contest with Athena? What? Do you mm-hmm. know this doesn't go well? Mm-hmm. Why? For what? What is... Mm-hmm. I mean... Why does she think that that's a good idea? It's not even so much it being a good idea. It's just like... What that's do not you even your thing. What do you gain yeah. from this? 
other than just being like, hey, I just said she was bored. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't exactly. Know. She's just challenging like, people what? to shit for fun that they're good at that they do. But that yeah. they're, they're they're specialty. Specialty. <laughs> I'll right. do it better. Yeah. She's like, hey, like I can just ask you to teach me this thing, but I'd rather make it interesting because I'm a fucking agent of chaos. I want to make it a challenge, yeah. Right. It's interesting how it's described by Nonus in uh, his Greek epic in the 5th century AD. He says, the dancers of Orchomenos, meaning the Charites, the Graces, right, who were attendants upon Aphrodite had no dancing then to do when Aphrodite entered a contest against Athena in weaving. But Pasithea made the spindle run round, Patho dressed the wool, Aglaia gave thread and yarn to her mistress. So literally she gets into a contest of weaving with Athena and brings like three attendant goddesses to like set up the loom, string it up for her, like so she could just like show up and weave. Yeah. But they're also kind of like doing the whole thing side by side with her like it's a little weird i mean that is like rich people shit though like she's just mm-hmm. like she's like whatever i like have my assistant do everything and then i'll just come in for the last second <laughs> so then apparently i feel like she like got on a real weaving bent and like completely got <laughs> absorbed and like was going through a crafting phase because she completely stopped doing her regular duties because the yeah. next part says and weddings went all astray in human life. <laughs> Time, the ancient who guides our existence, was disturbed and lamented the bond of wedlock used no more. Eros, unhonored, loosed his fiery bowstring when he saw the world's furrow unplowed and unfruitful, meaning no one was fucking anymore. Then the harp made no lovely music. The syrinx did not sound. The clear pipes did not sing in clear tones. Hymenaeus, the marriage tune. Oh my god. Like, <laughs> at first I'm annoyed that Aphrodite's doing this, and then I'm like, oh, because she's not allowed to have a hobby? She can't Are have fun. Are you kidding yeah. me? Like, what is this? She's at so, Joanne Fabrics the whole day and not doing it. any of the wedding stuff. No. So, what does the name Pygmalion mean to the two of you? Uh, so it makes me think of tragedy, but I don't. Does really, it ring a bell? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know the name. It's but a, I don't remember my Fair Lady. Yes, actually, and several other things were inspired by it. You're I right. mean, the play is called Pygmalion, but yeah, yeah but so is based more on the myth, mm-hmm. I suppose. So there once was a sculptor in Cyprus, which is considered largely the birthplace of Venus, or at least where the conch shell like came ashore. Mm-hmm. Uh, A sculptor who came to great renown. He was known for how lifelike his works were, even sometimes giving people a fright. One day he was working on a new sculpture, that of a woman crafted entirely from ivory. Aphrodite's festival had come, and so he made his offerings at her altar, even dedicating his statue to her honor. But he also secretly prayed that she might bless him with a bride in the, quote, living likeness of my ivory girl. When he returned home from her temple, he kissed the statue, and the lips felt warm. Startled, he kissed the statue again, and now the ivory had softened to flesh. Aphrodite had granted his prayer. The two were married and had a daughter named Paphos. This story is a clear parallel to many others in Greek myth, like the creation of Pandora, how Daedalus used Quicksilver to give his sculptures speech, and many more. And though it is short, it has gone on to inspire countless stories throughout the ages, including films, plays, works of art, and much more. Like My Fair Lady. Or Mannequin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wait, what? I, I don't know what My Fair Lady is. It's a musical. But, I mean, it was a play called Pygmalion that then became My Fair Lady that's, like, a more well-known musical. I mean, I just 
musicals are more well known by the general population, I guess. But um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, there's also like 18 different versions of the Pygmalion play, depending on the like like 18 yeah. different authored versions of Pygmalion the play, because it's like you basically have this incredibly rich idea and source material to mine, and it doesn't go anywhere in the story. You could go anywhere you wanted with this. Yeah. Of a statue come to life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So is that movie about when, um, I think his name's Joaquin Phoenix, like marries his phone or something? No. Probably. My Fair Lady is from like 50, 60 years ago. No, no, no. I'm ago, saying it's, it? It would, is that also a version? Yeah. Of, that like that sounds like it. Maybe. In the, the wheelhouse of this story because it's like theoretically. What's that movie called? Something like in the her girl or something. I thought. Yeah. Oh, her. her. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also oh um, Lars and the Real Girl is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Lars American, and the Real Girl, which also yeah. is probably in the same realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, did you ever see Simone uh, with Al Pacino, where it's like a simulated girl that he like ends up making into like a oh, pop star, actually, movie star? Yes, I totally remember that movie. Yeah, weird nineties movie. Or uh, yeah, very weird. Like very yeah, the way weird. they wrote it, it looked like Sim One. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Wow, um, so cutting edge. Yeah, that's a strange <laughs> reference. I never, I never thought I would ever think of that. That ever really again. is a deep cut. Uh, I, I never, did see I came it. up I in my head. It. I went, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this movie. Why yeah. did I watch this? Why did I? I saw it in the theater. I don't know why. Oh wow. So one of the things that I kind of wanted to tackle that I touched on earlier was Aphrodite getting blamed. One of the most fascinating things about Aphrodite's place in the Greek pantheon is that she's basically elevated to like a near cosmic level because she's the personification of beauty, love, desire, and procreation. She was capable of inducing lust, inspiring love, imbuing beauty, and increasing the Earth's population through procreation. She could exert this force on anyone, mortal or divine, with very few exceptions like the virgin goddesses, with a level of power that was honestly akin to the fates and talked about as seriously However, this power was a double-edged sword since Aphrodite was also blamed for all of the lewd, lascivious, and often violent behavior of all, including Zeus. Zeus, Zeus's behavior oh was the prime example where it was horrific and it was also blamed entirely on the corruptible influence of Aphrodite. Hmm. Yeah. That sucks. Like, that's like one more level of Zeus sucking. Is yeah. that he's like, it's not my yeah. fault, it's Aphrodite, because she like, waves the sex wand at, at yeah. me, and I don't know what to do. It's just yeah. running up the tab. Like, yeah. No yeah. Did you guys know that Aphrodite is in a bunch of Aesop's fables? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I brought two for us to talk about. <gasps> cool. The first one is about a weasel. <laughs> a weasel once, and you know, here's my thing. I do want to just point this out really quickly. Um, I feel like there's a very big missed opportunity in Disney Pixar for a movie where you have like medieval Arthurian Knights of the Round Table, but they're all weasels. Oh, like- because in like the Middle Ages, the idea of the basilisk mm-hmm. being this like giant lizard that's breath could like you know destroy plants and crack rocks and all that shit. Um, the only animal that could withstand the basilisk was the weasel. Well, yeah, they're pretty tough. Yeah, and so they would literally, like, go to battle with it. There's, like, old, like, Middle Ages scribbles about this. And the plant rue was essential for it because every time that they got injured in battle, they would go to a patch of rue, eat it, and heal up and get back into battle. And I'm like, bro, like, where is Disney Pixar on this shit? (laughs) About, like, Weasel Gang in, like, shining armor taking on the Basilisk. Like, come on! Sounds pretty cute. So they could do, like... 
combine a whole bunch of shit. Make Joan of Arc a weasel. Let's do this. It's very Redwall, yeah. For sure. A weasel once fell in love with a handsome young man. What? And the blessed goddess Aphrodite, <laughs> the mother of desire, allowed the weasel to change her shape so that she appeared to be a beautiful woman whom any man would be glad to take as his wife. What? Yep. As soon as the young man laid eyes on her, he also fell in love and wanted to marry her. While the wedding feast was in progress, a mouse ran by. The bride leapt up Bro. over the table from her richly decorated couch and began to run after the mouse, thus bringing an end to the wedding. After having played his little joke, Eros took his leave. Nature had proved stronger than love. <laughs> there was a popular Greek proverb, weasels don't wear wedding gowns, associated <laughs> with this fable that meant it doesn't matter, you know, like desire cannot overcome nature. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Weasels don't wear wedding dresses. It's true, they don't. I'm when I tell you I'm gonna a tiger can't change their stripes. This dead. Weasels don't wear wedding dresses is what it's all about. That's it's a much even more better one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Weasels don't wear wedding dresses. Okay. Just gonna pepper that in. And also, and, and 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 also the tiger and the changing the stripes thing. That like literally the t the stripes. It's are designed, literally not true. They, it's designed <laughs> for them to look like they're shifting. Like that's right. literally the purpose of them. In and nature. as they grow, they do change. They do so change. Like, like every, everyone stops saying stupid stuff. They right. don't even like it. have stripes on their babies. No they just have like dots. Anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's but idiotic. a weasel would never wear a wedding dress. We've grown past the point where we society needs stupidity. So get it together. <laughs> hey yo, you want to hear a story about why I like pigs? Yes. Oh, finally. A sow and a dog were viciously arguing with one another. <laughs> These are amazing. <laughs> I love Aesop's fables, man. That's so good. So, a sow and a dog were viciously arguing with one another. The sow, for her part, swore by Aphrodite that she would tear the dog to pieces with her teeth. The dog replied ironically, Yes, indeed, you do well to swear by Aphrodite. It's clear just how much she loves you, since she absolutely forbids anyone who has tasted your filthy flesh to enter her temple. The sow retorted, This is even more evidence of the goddess's love for me, since she turns away anyone who has slain or mistreated me in any way. As for you, you just smell bad, dead or alive. Miss Piggy? That is a really catty pig. I, like I love it. it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> there was a popular Greek proverb, don't sacrifice a pig to Aphrodite. That's the whole thing. That's the proverb. Huh. I, mm. it's, just, it's just an instruction. That's not a proverb. That's not a proverb. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not a proverb. Don't do this. <laughs> the way that it was used as a saying meant don't give someone a gift that is inappropriate or unwanted. That's oh, hilarious. I see. So, it was so a you would say like, oh, like do you think she'd like this? And it'd be like, don't give a pig to Aphrodite. Like, you know what I mean? I like, get it. Yes. It wasn't just like, yes, by the way, don't give Aphrodite a pig. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Thanks, mom. I was I asking think... you about my marriage, but cool. You don't seem to yeah, get how proverbs forgot. work. Some people forget. Yeah. People do forget in the story. Just a though. reminder. Oh, hello. Literally every five stories, we're back at human sacrifice. Yeah, they're I like, mean, guys, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. It's funny because when, like, when I'm teaching about the, the Greek gods uh, and, like, they come up in conversation, even my like sixth graders, when like human like there's a story where human sacrifice comes up, they're like, "Wait, don't they not like that?" And I'm like, "Yes, Yo, you it. even remember." <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, 
Today, my friends, is going to be one hell of a deep dive because we are covering the evolution of Venus. Mm. What's that? Well, going all the way back to the beginning of recorded history, at least in the West, there have been goddesses associated with the planet Venus, and they've existed on a connected sort of continuum, both evolving and maintaining key features shared among them. We're going to go in more or less chronological order here, so follow along as we discuss each goddess in terms of when their worship was happening, who was worshiping them, how their appearance was described, what their key symbols, icons, and attributes were, their patronage, and where we can, an example myth would be useful, so we'll pop that in there too. So we're going to start with, get back to like seventh grade history. We're doing the Fertile Crescent, okay? Let's go. Um, the Fertile Crescent, also known as a, as a cradle of civilization, witnessed the rise and fall of many kingdoms, peoples, eras, and pantheons of gods. And throughout all of them, Inanna and her counterpart Ishtar reigned supreme as the great goddess of the region. So we will start with Inanna. The when at least as far back as 4000 BC, probably farther. The who, initially Sumerian, but basically everybody at some yeah. point. Appearance. Now, her appearance fluctuated in different areas and with different peoples, in different ages, and it was also dependent on which of her sides or faces one was looking to beseech. Some descriptions have her as a sort of hybrid woman owl when she's the goddess of warfare and sexuality, and others would show her as an armored and winged Amazon. The Sumerians worshipped Inanna as the goddess of both warfare and sexuality. Inanna is mentioned in more myths than any other Sumerian or even Mesopotamian god or goddess, and her domain does not remain static. In fact, she's often described as moving from conquest to conquest, taking over the domains of other gods. She's characterized as both wise and powerful and young and impetuous, constantly striving to expand her domain. Her attributes are a hooked-shaped knot of reeds, which represents the doorpost of the storehouse, a common symbol of fertility and plenty, the eight-pointed star, the lion, the rosette, the dove, and the owl. In terms of patronage, she's mentioned in more myths and legends than any other deity hailing from the Fertile Crescent, so she's a pretty big deal. See, the thing about Inanna is that her domain was ever-changing. Sex, war, justice, political power, sovereignty. She was responsible for so many parts of life, the changing of seasons, uh, the succession of kings. She was the patroness of the arts and of craftspersons. She was the patroness of sex workers and brides and of queer folks of all stripes. Indeed, her personality and her purview went beyond any one gender. In terms of myth, unlike many other Venusian goddesses, she's never seen as the goddess of marriage or as a mother goddess. So for each of them, I'm going to also say like, hey, here's the thing that makes them kind of like an outlier in the continuum. And for her, she's really warlike and state sovereignty and like brilliance and all of these things. But she's never majorly seen as a goddess of marriage or motherhood. She's potentially the only Venusian goddess without any known children. That's oh. just like a thing. Her warlike personality was often heralded in her hymns. The Sumerians even referred to war as the Dance of Inanna. That's cool. Listen to one of her hymns. Quote, She stirs confusion and chaos against those who are disobedient to her, speeding carnage and inciting the devastating flood. Clothed in terrifying radiance, it is her game to speed conflict in battle, untiring, strapping on her sandals. 
That's sick. She's the baddest. She's like, so cool. yeah. We're gonna do the descent of Inanna in a future episode as like a whole M4 episode, and oh my god, I'll just be weeping the whole time. Mm-hmm. But it's really worth it. Now, as for Ishtar, many historians, both past and present, preferred to simply join the two together. Neighboring and later civilizations did indeed incorporate and assimilate Inanna into their pantheons. However, that's not to say that these other goddesses, like Ishtar, did not each have their own individual personalities and cults. Just as these goddesses exist on a continuum, there are sometimes groupings which function like a cluster or like a branch on a tree. So it is with Ishtar, Astarte, and other Semitic goddesses of old, including Inanna. It's key here to remember that each of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, grew to be monotheistic. None of them started out that way, especially not Judaism or Islam, which both featured goddesses who functioned as the wife, consort, or counterpart to the supreme or father god. So, Ishtar. So the Wen is fuzzy. She definitely comes after Inanna uh, because she comes with the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians who came after Sumerians. But still really far. We're talking probably at least 3,000 to 3,500 years B.C. Appearance-wise, especially during the Akkadian period, Ishtar was depicted as a heavily armored warrior goddess with a lion at her side. And just as with Inanna, Ishtar ruled over love and war. However, in many depictions, there was a much sharper contrast between these two aspects when they were ruled over by Ishtar. Where Inanna was impetuous, Ishtar was easy to anger and vengeful at that. She was patroness of fertility, yet at even a perceived slight, she would rain down terror, go to war, blight crops, slaughter livestock, and strike all the earth barren. Even though Inanna could be capricious, she was still characterized in terms of a great goddess, whereas Ishtar, though incredibly influential and powerful, was pictured as forever youthful. She was also known to be loyal, always protecting those that she favored. However, if one was foolish enough to dishonor her, she would not just destroy them, she would go after their entire nation. As Ishtar became more prominent, there was a mass consolidation around her in which most of the lesser gods of the region were subsumed and her purview was expanded. These included Aya, the wife of Utu, Anunitu, the Akkadian light goddess, Agasayam, a warrior goddess, Ernini, patroness of Lebanese cedar forests, Kalili, the symbol of desirable women, Sihirtu, the messenger of lovers, Kirgulu, the bringer of rain, Sarbanda, the personification of sovereignty, and Anat, the consort of Anu. Now, speaking of Anat, she really gets around. Check out how many different mythologies she appears in. So Anat, in Ugaritic texts, is depicted as violent and delighting in war, but also as the establisher of peace. She is depicted as sexual and fertile, bringing forth offspring, while still continuing to be called a virgin and a maiden. In Akkadian texts, Anat was Antu, as she was the consort of Anu, the sky god. Here, she is more of a placeholder as a consort and is fundamentally lacking any distinct personality. As the continuum goes, Inanna of Sumeria and her Western Semitic counterpart Ishtar would continue on first as Anat, who shared Ishtar's warlike fervor, and later, and much more widely, as Astarte. For a significant period, there was a powerful triad of goddesses, Anat, Astarte, and Kadesh, the Holy One. Interestingly, Anat's Hercules-esque son, Shamgar, is mentioned in the biblical book of Judges. 
While some have theorized he was a demigod of sorts, historical analysis shows a likely military de designation which effectively specified any warrior of great renown as under Anat's protection. In fact, oh. Joseph, the Hebrew patriarch, was married to a woman named Asenath. The 5th century Elephantine papyri makes mention of Anat Yahweh the wife or sacred consort of Yahweh worshipped by Jewish refugees during the Babylonian conquest of Judea. And there's also the fact that, like, we're going to get into Adar Goddess in a little bit. Adar Goddess is most likely a fusion of Anat and Astarte. So we're going to do Astarte next. So remember, these are all going chronologically, and they're sort of a continuum where they're growing out of each other. Each of them is tied to Venus, the planet Venus, as the dawn star, the evening star, and having that dual nature that you'll keep seeing, okay? Astarte is the Hellenized form of the northwestern Semitic goddess Astareth, counterpart to the eastern Semitic Ishtar. She was worshipped from the Bronze Age through classical antiquity. She was particularly beloved by the Canaanites and Phoenicians and later in Egypt. She's most often depicted as a naked woman, holding her breasts or raising her arms above her head. She is the deified morning and or evening star. She's also seen as a warrior woman and bearing large horns. Astarte was definitively more warlike and less sensual than Ishtar due to the influence of Anat. Hmm. Her attributes are the five-pointed star, uh, especially in a circle as well that was found yeah. there. The sphinx, the lion, the dove, and the horse. Her most common symbol was the crescent moon, which was often depicted as her horns. Yeah. Her patronage was fertility, love, sex, and war. And importantly, Astarte may have fused with an ancient Cypriot goddess, and in doing so, laid the template for Aphrodite. In mm. fact, there are definitive syncretized links between Astarte and the Etruscan Uni, the Roman Juno, and Dea Gravita, Carthaginian Tanit, Aramean Adder Goddess, Egyptian Isis in her mother role, Sekhmet and her warrior role, and the Arabic Alat, one of the wives of Allah. She is mentioned in the books Genesis and Joshua as Ashtoreth, a foreign goddess, principal of the Phoenicians. And of course, she's also a major figure in the Goetia, one of the key texts of Western demonology, where she is Astaroth, a foul and stinking angel of corruption and lust, who is made male. Hmm. Then we have Asherah, who comes from around 2000 BC. And is Semitic, um, hailing from the Akkadians, Hittites, and Ugaritic texts. She is identified with Eve and Shekinah. If you don't know, Shekinah is sort of like the idea of the divine feminine. Mm -hmm. Her attributes are the dove, tree of life, lioness, and Asherah pole. Her patronage was motherhood and fertility. Asherah is much more than most of the other goddesses listed a great mother goddess. She mm. was queen consort to the supreme god of multiple pantheons, including the Sumerian Anu, the Ugaritic El, and Judeo-Yahweh. Ugaritic amulets and other iconography depicted a tree of life, quote-unquote, growing out of her, sometimes pregnant belly. These were actualized by Asherah poles, which were either sacred trees or fashioned poles, which were used in her worship. This practice was so ubiquitous in the area that it was outlawed by name in the law codes in the Book of Deuteronomy. She is sometimes associated with Eve, given that they share the title Mother of All Living in Genesis. She is further and more often associated with the Shekinah. Her identification with the Shekinah, which is the supposed female aspect of Yahweh, is seen by historians as a form of cultural memory or a demotion of a sovereign goddess in favor of patriarchal power. 
Interestingly, today, the Shekinah is most often conflated with the Holy Spirit and the Tridentine Godhead or the Trinity and is always represented by a dove. Mm. Also uniquely, she was worshipped as a special patron by royal women, such as Queen Mother Maka, who is mentioned in the first book of Kings in the Bible. This was only part of her role, however, as she was understood as the sovereign patron of all matriarchs, regardless of social standing, and she was worshipped in households where her rituals and offerings were performed by each family's matriarch. Even the women of Jerusalem held a special place for her, saying in the book of Jeremiah, found in uh, Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 19, quote, When we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes impressed with her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? And this leads us to Adar Goddess, who is Syrian and is tied with doves and fish. She's basically the culmination of several Bronze Age goddesses. You have Atirat, the fertile lady goddess of the sea, Anat, the warlike virgin goddess we talked about, and Atart, the goddess of love and namesake of the Phoenician goddess Ashtart, who became Astarte in Greek. Adar goddess was the chief goddess of ancient Syria, and she was known to serve many roles. She started out as a primordial sea goddess akin to the Greek Amphitrite. She played a major role in the Pantheon as the wife of Hadad, since as a couple, they were the sovereign protectors of the community, responsible for their city and their people's health, happiness, and safety. It is this role which garnered her the mural crown that she wears, acting as the ancestor to the royal house. In the role of divine ancestor, she was credited with founding social and religious life and its order, presiding over generation and fertility, and both inventing useful appliances and teaching the art of invention to humanity. At the height of her renown, she was hailed as a great goddess on par with Kybele and Rhea. In her role as a water goddess, she was also goddess of birth. However, in Chaldean thought, she was also seen as the ruler over the afterlife and destiny. This evolution takes us now to Turan with the Etruscans, circa 600 BC. Turan appeared as a young winged woman. She, I believe, may be the only one out of everyone that we've talked about so far that regularly appeared winged. Hmm. She's richly robed and bejeweled. She's always accompanied by her handmaidens, who are called the Lhasa, and she rides atop her mount, a black swan called Tusna. Her attributes are the pigeon, dove, goose, black swan, and hand mirror. And her patronage is sovereign goddess of love, health, beauty, and fertility. However, the erotic was not her only sphere. She was also a mother. She would bear arms in times of conflict, and she played a major role in funerary rites. Wow. Her name roughly translates to the act of giving, as far as we can tell, because the Etruscan language is so hard to like figure out. Tehran was seen as the equivalent to the Roman Venus in the Greek Aphrodite. Her name is the pre-Hellenic root of Tyrannos, absolute ruler, and where we get tyrant from. So basically, Tehran would be seen as mistress, possibly meaning mistress. She had a sanctuary in the Greek-influenced Graviska, the port of Tarquinia, where votive gifts inscribed with her name have been found. One inscription calls her Tehran Ati, Mother Tehran, which has been interpreted as connecting her to Venus Genetrix, Venus, the mother of Aeneas and progenitor of the Romans. Right. Tehran is one of the few Etruscan goddesses who has survived into Italian folklore from Romagna. She's now called Tarana, where she is a fairy, a spirit of love and happiness who helps lovers find each other. Hmm. Then we have Aphrodite. Hey, y'all, it's me, Aphrodite. <laughs> I know we've been digging out some dirt and bones and old clay and shit, and you thought we'd never get to me, but here I am. <laughs> 
I would dust off my skirt, but I'm not wearing anything. Hey. <laughs> it fell off. <laughs> it fell off. Oh, I'm in various stages of undress. Hi. <laughs> Kim I The when for Aphrodite is tough. But the best we can tell, we're looking at 1100 to 1600 BC during Mycenaean Greece. Mm-hmm. Aphrodite, in terms of her appearance... She's most often seen like rising from the sea, clad in a diaphanous garment, which is drenched with seawater and clinging to her body, revealing upturned breasts and the outline of her navel. Her hair hangs dripping as she reaches to two attendants, standing barefoot on the rocky shore on either side of her, lifting her out of the water. Of course, that would be Botticelli's Birth of Venus, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Attributes, apple, pomegranate, myrtle, rose, dove, sparrow, swan, dolphin, pearl, scallop shell, girdle, mirror, a whole bunch of other stuff. Arguably, two of her most profound epithets, Aphrodite Urania and Aphrodite Pandemos, were used to illustrate various qualities of love and dimensions of experience. For example, where Urania was the love experienced by the soul, Pandemos was pure physical lust. They were both held in high regard as they governed equally important aspects of her influence. So we'll do some epithets. We have Aphrodite Urania, meaning the heavenly or divine, right? Drawn from Uranus, obviously. She was depicted as heavenly with one foot resting upon a tortoise. She was also sometimes depicted with a swan or a globe. And she was the specific patroness of unconventional, shameful, or forbidden love. So... Love between, um, like, races, classes, status, all those things that was, like, not seen as acceptable was under her purview. She was originally the patroness of pederasty, but as that became much more solidly a Greek thing and not a Roman thing, then, like, she carried on as a goddess just called Urania for the Romans, and she was very much, like, universal love. If that's if that makes sense. As Aphrodite Urania, she's the celestial queen of heaven, and she's elevated to the status of such like a rank, right? She's born out of Uranos. Um, Aphrodite was born out of violence. Essentially, there were three generations of gods. Remember, primordial titans of the Olympians. Each generation was succeeded by the next in the enactment of a coup. And so basically she was born out of one of those coups, which means again and this is the interesting thing in her tie to uranus that kind of also feeds into the mythology and the iconology of uranus astrologically being tied to revolutions so aphrodite pandemos means common to all people she was depicted as riding atop a great white ram and only white goats would be sacrificed to her this was earthly Aphrodite. She was the patroness of basic earthly acts of procreation, which make life possible. Her veneration, it is said, began with Theseus, who first united the Greeks. Of course, we know Aphrodite foremost as the goddess of love, but it's not just romantic love that she was sovereign over. It was also bonds of family, kinship, and community. Pandemos was originally an extension of the idea of Aphrodite as the goddess of the love and harmony of the home and the town or city to the people as a whole, the whole political community in this case she's normally seen in her more mundane version as the daughter of zeus and dion right right uh, other common epithets for her are aphrodite syria dea the syrian goddess astarte that she's synchronized with aphrodite anthea the blooming this is where she rules vegetation gardens and blossoms she has special rights at the advent of spring and was worshipped near lowlands and marshlands to encourage the growth of vegetation aphrodite Araya. 
the warlike. Depicted in full war armor, her veneration was founded in Cyprus and was centered in Sparta. There were ancient historians and there are some modern day interpreters who have asserted that Aphrodite Araya was actually a feminine aspect of Ares, and there is some evidence to support this claim. Okay. That's cool. We'll get into them with Venus, but there is, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a masculinized Aphrodite, and so they're saying this could have actually gone both ways. Mm. Like, Aphrodite Araya could actually be the feminized version of Ares and not the masculinized version of Aphrodite. And then the last three are, are just my favorites, but they're also really... I want to give you guys them as jumping off points for your own research because they're really like you hear them and you go, wait a minute, that's Aphrodite. <laughs> what? Aphrodite Androphonos. Aphrodite, killer of men. Oh, Aphrodite Anosia. Aphrodite, the unholy one. Oh, that one. And yeah. Aphrodite Timbarikos. This one is here exclusively for Daphne. Aphrodite, the gravedigger. What? Oh my yeah. God. Mm hmm. And then we have Venus, who, of course, you know, is Roman and is, of course, the most allegedly the most recent incarnation or iteration on our continuum. Uh, attributes are, of course, you know, some similar things. Rose, Myrtle, patronage, love, beauty, desire, fertility, prosperity. Now, there's something to be said about the very real difference between Aphrodite and Venus. And we have gone through this before, so we're not going to tread too much familiar ground. But... As tempting as it is to simply assume that Venus is a renamed Aphrodite, this is absolutely not true. Again, the Romans adopted the visual depictions used by the Greeks for the gods and sometimes entirely imported Greek gods. I'm not going to have, you know, I'm obviously going to be able to tell you differences between Apollo and like Saul Invictus, right? Because that was like an imperial thing that they used for like the army, mm -hmm. kind of like a banner that they fought under. So of course they have like different roles, yeah. but they wholesale imported Apollo. They were like, great, we love it, we'll take it. Like that was not a, you know, there was no real analogous thing. But, but so many of them, they get their original character from like the indigenous peoples of Italy, like what we now know of as Italy, whether it was the italics, the Latins, the Sabines, there's all different people, yeah. and the Etruscans, because Etruscans. don't forget, the you don't get Rome without the Etruscans. They literally, Rome is an Etruscan word. People mm -hmm. don't realize that. It's not a Latin word, it's an Etruscan word. We talked last week, everybody remembers about the difference between Aries and Mars, mm -hmm. right? It's very similar, the difference between Aphrodite and venus and that aries part of her i think we made really clear with the amphorasode yeah so it's in that same way that aphrodite and venus have that contrast given that aphrodite like few other gods had no childhood she's eternally nubile and infinitely desirable herein lies the root of her most affable and her most egregious aspects that youthful nature often plays out with her acting petty and capricious she was as easily angered as she was mercilessly vengeful she was known to be impossibly vain deeply jealous, viciously deceitful, underhanded, and scheming. Venus, on the other hand, was the other half of Rome's divine ancestry. Depending on who told the story, Aeneas, the son of Venus, founded Rome. This honored and incorporated the Greeks. That was something that was very important to the Romans. Mm -hmm. Or Romulus and Remus, the twin sons of Mars, founded Rome. This honored and incorporated the tribes of the Italic Peninsula. So they were married into one story, basically. Roman theology posited that Venus was the essential counterpart to Mars. Like yin, yin and yang is essentially what they were posited as. Mm -hmm. So she is yin. She is the moon. She is like that essentially feminine, but like 
you know, that whole thing we talked about last week, whereas he is the son and the yang of it all, right? You see, where Aphrodite and Ares seem to be cut from the same cloth, beautiful but dangerous, Venus and Mars seem to be counterbalanced in order to afford stability. Where Aphrodite and Ares are young and foolish and overzealous and oftentimes self-sabotaging, which you're going to hear about in Hephaestus' episode, Venus and Mars are mature, wise, and accomplished. Mm -hmm. Venus was the prime goddess in the Roman pantheon, and the thing about her is that she was largely unencumbered by consort or spouse. One of the fundamental elements so many of us misunderstand about Roman religion is that it was formal, contractual, and largely uneventful. Honoring and venerating the gods was equal to paying your taxes. It was done in order to contribute to the whole, to the security and longevity of Rome. Propitiating the gods was your duty as a Roman citizen. And the Romans, of course, as we've discussed, believed that they were going to stay on top as long as they honored the gods better than anybody else. And, of course, that's why they had their temple to the unknown god, right? Mm -hmm. It's also why they were pluralistic and why they would practice evocatio. So, the cult of Venus... We, we understand all of these things of how, like, yes, it was pretty rigid. There was no room for zeal or fervor. You weren't supposed to get all caught up in it. You didn't want to be seen as superstitious. It was very by the book, you know? And that's what the main job of a priest, literally, was never messing up the invocations. Mm -hmm. mm. Like, that's what made you a priest was you studied how to memorize the prayers and enunciate them perfectly every single time so that everybody else could, like, take a rest. Because there was every time you made a mistake in a ritual, there were augment like auxiliary parts you had to then plug in yeah, before you more were you done had to, do. yeah. to propitiate anybody that you offended. Which means what could have been ten minutes is now three hours. Yeah. Because Junior over here has fucking, you know, mumble mouth. So <laughs> it's that's how it is. But in sharp contrast to all of that, you have the cult of Venus. The cult of Venus was in many ways a maverick in the pantheon. Whereas the honor and veneration of the other gods was done out of obligation, her cult in many ways offered something very different. In Rome, magic was largely under Venus's purview. So if you needed something a little less official and a little more illicit, it was her temple that you'd be heading to. Now throw in some sacred sex work, add some gender variants, and you've got some real conviction in the hearts of worshipers. Venus, as the divine ancestress of the people, was understood to be much more powerful and have a much larger domain and exert much more influence on the lives of the people than her Greek counterpart. She was also more intimately tied to many people's biggest moments. Young patrician women, and then later basically most young free women, who were about to be married, went through a ritual where they would leave their childhood playthings, especially a doll, at the feet of of her statue and her temple as a rite of passage into womanhood before they got married. That's so strangely not creepy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This actually lives on today. In certain places where they have quinceaneras, there's a part of it called La Ultima Muñeca, the final doll. Hmm. Or the last doll. And like that's part of like, okay, you're not a little girl you anymore, you're becoming a woman. Yeah. yeah. The other thing about her that I think is really, really cool that also I think contributed heavily to traditional astrology calling venus the lesser benefic along with like jupiter being the greater is that she was also tied with luck because in dice games in ancient rome the luckiest best possible role was dubbed the venus interesting which is wild so we have venus kyalestis the celestial heavenly one and that's syncretized with aphrodite urania 
We have G Venus Genetrix, the universal mother. Venus is goddess of motherhood and domesticity. She had a festival on September 26th. She was a divine ancestress to the Roman people. She was claimed by Julius Caesar as a personal ancestor as he built her a temple in 46 BC. And it also functions as the name for a specific style of Venus statuary. Like, B has a Venus Genetrix in our room. Mm -hmm. Venus Cloacina, the purifier, who was, after Cloacina, was, like, subsumed into her. Cloacina is one of my favorite Roman goddesses because she's the goddess of... She's, like, everything about her is pure white and, like, purity mm. and, like, purification. And she's the goddess of the sewage system of Rome. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Syncretism strikes again. The Venus, uh, Venus absorbed the Etruscan water goddess Cloacina, who watched over the Cloaca Maxima the great drain of Rome from her ancient shrine placed there. Accordingly, Cloacina was the embodiment of purity and the act of purification and purging. Pliny the Elder, remarking Venus as a goddess of union and reconciliation, identified the shrine with a legendary episode in Rome's earliest history when the warring Romans and Sabines carrying branches of myrtle in her honor met there to sign a peace treaty. There's Venus Victrix, the victorious one. And then we have the two that are going to win over my dear friend, Daphne. <laughs> Venus Barbata, the bearded Venus. Yeah, of course. That's great. Greek and Roman historians bore witness to the masculinity on display in Venus's temples in Cyprus and Sparta, where in at least one of her incarnations, she was indeed bearded. This is rooted in a forerunner named Aphroditus, who we have mentioned before. Aphroditus was Aphrodite's masculine warlike aspect, which she would take on whenever the occasion demanded it or when she was seducing Hermes and had a kid. Then we have Venus Calva, the bald Venus. Wow. <laughs> The bald Venus is a strange one, to say the least, and she has a few very interesting origin stories, so it's time for Choose Your Own Adventure! <laughs> and one of my favorites, Rome was under siege, and soldiers were unable to fend off much with ranged attacks given that so many of their bowstrings had given out. The women of Rome, who had been attempting to contribute to the war effort in every way, had a stroke of genius and collectively gave up all of their hair to restring the empire's bows. It was this dedication that brought Venus's favor and the swift victory that came thereafter. Wow. That's pretty cool. In another telling, Ansys Marcius, one of the Roman kings, had a wife who was absolutely beloved by the people. Real Princess Diana type. Well, at some point, an epidemic struck, and she was stricken ill along with so many others. One of the major symptoms of the plague was hair loss, and here she suffered more than most. As a stunning act of solidarity, the women of Rome, sick and well, dispensed with their precious locks. In one, it commemorates the virtuous offer by Roman matrons of their own hair to make bowstrings during a siege of Rome. In another, King Ancus Marcius's wife and other Roman women lost their hair during an epidemic in hopes of its restoration. Unafflicted women sacrificed their own hair to Venus. So, incredible. Venus Armada, the armed one. Venus Libitina, the undertaker. And Venus Castina, the chaste one. This Venus was known as the unconquerable, invincible virgin, drawing her iconology from Diana. She presided over the, quote, yearnings of female souls locked up in male bodies. Wow. She is most often seen as an aspect or variation of Aphrodite Urania. So that's Venus for us. And you might be asking yourself, like, well, what happened to the continuum? Did it just die with Venus? Well, in a strange way, it actually did carry on 
because the very early Christians were pretty divided on what to do with the cult of Venus and its deeply entrenched loyalties among the Roman peoples. In many ways, the early church wholesale adopted Aphrodite Urania's celestial queendom as the blueprint for depictions of the Virgin Mary, especially like Mary, Queen of Heaven. Yeah. And they chose Aphrodite Pendemos and her earthy mundane lusts for the attributes and qualities which could be demonized. So that Madonna horror complex kind of has its origin right here. Don't forget how ingrained in our DNA she was at that point. Whether it was Inanna or Astarte or Aphrodite, we knew her immediately as the Queen of Heaven, the morning and the evening star, with her doves and her winged handmaidens who governs love and war and so much else. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's part of it. We've talked a lot about how, like, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was Roman before it was Catholic. But, yeah, I mean, if you look at a lot of things like the rosary coming from the rose, the most sacred flower of Venus, doves being so big. I think yeah. every single goddess I named on that continuum had doves. Yeah. yeah, that was a pretty early adoption, I feel like. I like seeing it all adapt, but it's like there are similarities that come and then go and then, you know, you can you can feel yourself moving closer to Venus like gradually yeah. or like to yeah. Aphrodite, you know. You can feel it getting closer and closer as it goes on. I think it's really cool, and this is like related, but kind of not, that like we know to some degree that like Venus's atmosphere is like super ter like terrible like in terms mm -hmm. of like what we would be able to uh, like to kind of live in or not be able to live in um, but it's really pretty in the sky um, mm. and so that like our interpret like I'm just kind of uh, kind of goes back to the idea of like not taking myths as cool stories or like just cultural kind of like touchstones but as like actual history because it's like i'm usually astounded by how many times like a older civilization or an ancient civilization like has a story about some kind of like weird relationship and then thousands of years later we find out scientifically that they're related yeah. um and so i just i i think the eight-pointed star and just like all of that lineage is just like fascinating just because like mm. she's like one of the like that energy is like one of the OG, like, like supreme divinities, um, like hundred percent, <laughs> like as far as we're concerned, right? Hundred uh, percent. And so she's super fascinating. Um, I think like all the ways in which uh, we tie so many other like stories into that idea of like the war and uh, peace and war. Um, and like how they can't really exist without each other, right? Like you, you theoretically, in order to have peace, you have had to have had something that wasn't peace before. Um, and how like just like all the imagery, man. Like the the like the rose. Well, think about the imagery of who who does Venus rule astrologically? Taurus and, and Libra. Taurus, yeah. Libra. Yeah. Now think about Aphrodite Urania slash Venus Genetrix and Aphrodite Pendemos. Yeah. Taurus is Pendemos, of the earth, of the people. Right. Of the, like, the basic carnal lusts and desires and pleasures. And then you have the conceptual queen of heaven and cosmic mother who deals with the forces that create love and war and the balance between them. Yeah. Right. Which is sick thinking about Libra being ruled by Venus, Libra being represented by the scales. Yeah. Going backwards isis becoming like one of the like kind of like m like moved into there as like a, one of the things that people are like oh this is somewhere in here um mm. this is like related energy and like her like kind of role with the the like the you know all of the things that happen in the egyptian pantheon and her, like her supremacy there yeah um 
So I just think that's super cool. Um, and also just like, yeah, like the description of Aphrodite's palace, like checks out with like all of the things that pretty much any Taurus I've ever met would like, which. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel the strong Libra vibes too for my, my Libra kin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think like, even the I have a lot of love for Libras. I I guess maybe because I have a Libra moon, <laughs> yeah. um, and it does a lot of things to me. But yeah. like I, I have a lot of love for Libras. I think that they're they have a lot to teach people. Um, I, I, every sign has their shitty piss baby version they have to grow out of. Yeah, I don't personally find Libra's version to be like especially heinous. I mean, let's be honest, they're not Leos. So, you know, nobody, if, ha- if, if, you if know, you're not a Leo, like, you're fine. Essentially. Yes. That's pretty much my, my, <laughs> my like <laughs> measuring stick is if you're not a Leo, you're fine. I also um, think we get a bit of a bad rap about that. Like, I think I don't know that. Ma- I know a lot of Libras because we all um, like attract to each other. <laughs> and I don't really know any Libras that are like, I mean, they have the qualities of the sort of like full of ourselves like material things like spoiled kind of that side of it but i don't know any that are like that that's like their main quality no i the only reason that Li- that libras ever have an issue is because they're innately non-confrontational and they end up having a very uh complicated relationship with the truth as like very early on that they have to grow out of because of that because yeah. libras are the kind of people who lie instinctively if they think that it will make you happy well, and yeah, it'll they're, avoid they're like too good attacked. at dealing with people. Yeah. So like you go up to a Libra, you go, did you do this? And they'll go, no. Even if they're caught red handed, they, yeah. because they're just, they don't want there to be a conflict. Whereas a Taurus is like, give me half a reason to fucking eat you alive. <laughs> and you sort of have that spectrum, which is something that I understand pretty intrinsically as somebody who's ruled by Mars, because my counterpart, of course, is Scorpio. We're both traditionally ruled by Mars. We're the two most intense signs in the entire Zodiac. Mm-hmm. That's undoubtable. Anybody yeah, would agree with for that. for sure. But we're two ends of a spectrum because you have the fact that, like, I'm 95% external. You're like, ex- you surfacey, external, yeah. Transparent. Just Outward. transparent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have, on the other side, 95% internal, the Scorpio, yeah. right? So dark and deep. You have that same thing in terms of that inter- that uh, the external and internal thing that happens with Taurus, um, and Libra. Taurus and Libra in terms of where do they find that Venusian sense of aesthetic yeah. or balance or harmony? Is it in themselves and how they treat themselves? Is it in others and how they treat others? I mean, Libra's... And, and this is, Libras get a bad rap for being like codependent or serial monogamous or whatever. It's not that. It's that they have to grow enough to realize, okay, I am deeply anchored and rooted and grounded and centered in the other people in my life. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I need to be extremely careful of how I curate the people in my life. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not so deeply affected by them, right? Yeah. Maybe that's why I get that more than most people. And it's funny because that makes me not, even though I'm so good at dealing with people, I'm actually like for my personal life, extremely selective of the people that I even interact with on any level. And I had to teach that to Eli because whatever, he didn't know. He was just like, everyone is my best friend. If I talk to you, we're friends and you're nice. And I was like, no, people aren't nice and you can't trust anyone. And like these people were all horrible to you. And like, which sounded really dark at first, but now he totally gets it. And it's made him a much healthier person because it's just boundaries. Like I had to teach him how to set boundaries. And I realized it is because if I 
if I let you in and he's the same way, he just didn't see it. If I, if we let you in and you fuck us over, like we're going to take that really hard. Like we're going to actually accept you in and like, so we just can't go there. Like it just doesn't go there easily. You're being brought into a place where you can do a lot of damage. Where I'm, where I'm like unsafe. So you have to earn that position. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I love my Libra moon because as an Aries, I'm so... You don't have that level of protection, really. Naturally. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, whatever, yeah. Like, it's it's that cardinal energy in a very, in a fiery way, right? Yeah. Where also, but I will tell you right now, there's also a counterbalancing that's happened where not only has having a Libra moon really helped me with boundaries in my life, where I have an extremely selective group around me that curated is not even a strong enough word because I have no energy or time for anybody else, but... The thing is, is that as an Aries, I immediately know what I think about everything. Yes. <laughs> no issue. No wavering. My gut instinct is true. Love it. Great. And that's good for me. The stereotypical sun sign Aries then says, and that's good enough for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, it's not though. And having that Libra moon has always made me just as invested in, it actually is great that I have an Aries sun because immediately I know where I stand and then I spend the entire rest of my time deeply invested in finding out where's everybody else at. Yeah, you're not how, just doing how, whatever you're doing. You're actually like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? About the opposite side. And yeah. then Gemini Which, Rising helps me sort of facilitate the conversation. You know, that's so that's, that's why you're the storyteller. Come on. I was gonna Can say now? I'm also a big Libra fan. Um, and one of the things I think that, I mean as a Libra, I'm just gonna interject that like everyone is though. Like, come on. <laughs> no, they're, <laughs> like, not. they're not. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it's so weird because I, I genuinely so thought they kidding. were. I was like, who would beef with a fucking Libra? And we then just I think lines. we just think <laughs> we just think that everyone loves us. Because a lot of people do. It's yeah, like pretty hard to dislike a Libra. Like we're very, very, well, very who's, cool. Who's against you guys? Who's against you guys? Water signs? Like Water cry signs. about it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> I don't get along with Pisces. That's... I honestly have zero time in my life for Cancers and for Pisces. I'm a Cancer uh, Moon, Cancer Rising. I'm like the most. I'm more Cancer than I am Libra. We all have our faults, and uh, I love you. I love through cancers, them. Hey, I love but... Cancers. I'm a big. Yeah, cancer. I love Cancers. You have to but understand. I like... I can't I think, deal with a cancer who hasn't grown. I think, well, neither are, can I, and that is my father. They but are I the most toxic. babies, yeah. Unbelievably, like, wildly vindictive, manipulative, toxic people when they have not grown up. For sure. I mean, my, my closest sibling out of five is a double cancer, sun and moon, yeah. with a Taurus rising, mind you. That's so a this bitch is person. changing for nothing, okay? <laughs> Tells you nothing, changing for nothing. And we have a deep and, un, like, abiding cellular level understanding of each other. Shout out to my brother, Thomas Daniel. If you ever want to find um, some really kick-ass music, check out my brother, Thomas Daniel, who's Ooh. a fabulous artist. Um, and has, I think, over, cool. like, I don't know, 8 million streams on fucking Spotify or something. Like, so singer-songwriter cool. kills it. But awesome. I learned about a lot about cancers just by dealing with my brother. Yeah. And cancers who've taken the time to work on themselves. Yeah. I can't deal with the martyr complex, bitch. I can't deal with, oh, my God. oh yeah. I have no sense of identity in who I am or what I do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to impose myself on everyone else as if they need me. And then I'm going to need, I'm going to endlessly complain about how everybody else is constantly using me and then burn myself out and blame it on everyone else. I mean, that is very real. That's very real. (laughs) That's it. I still, 
I'm gonna I still love cancerous, but it is And I'm going to call it empathy. I'm empathic. No, you have shitty boundaries and no sense of self. Get I out hate of that. Here. But I think, can't. I mean, I have to say, I think my heavy cancer dose works really well because I'm a Libra son. Like, yeah. I think they work really well together. It, like, makes me much more, I'm like, it, it gives Let's my. Let's be clear. If you have a cancer moon, I think you're fine. Yeah, I'm because a Cancer Moon, where, Cancer Rising. That's where the moon is supposed to be. Right, exactly. Yeah, this is why somebody with a Leo moon or a Cancer sun, I'm like, something's wrong. Yeah. Something's wrong. you got a lot to work through. That's not where that planet likes to be at all. <laughs> at all. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Speaking about like the relationship between Sagittarius and Libra, um, and like to one of my best friends who like I came to New York with from high school, um, uh, and like this is like looking at our relationship and then looking at that musically as well um, gives me the like was was easier to see the perspective of Libra in the sense of like even with the like relationships things like I think a lot of memes and stuff give it like obsession with like people's relationships and their own and like blah 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 like the serial monogamy thing when I think it's like a little bit closer to like where people's like wisdom kind of lies and like with I think with Libras, it's like yeah, when you're not that kind of grown up version of it, it's a lot of being tossed around by virtue of like avoiding conflict. But well, it's your medicine. Everybody has their specific medicine that they bring to the table, and it's toxic when they haven't grown up yet. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, a well evolved and adjusted and grown Cancer who's done the work they need to do is going to be somebody who is deeply the true definition of empathic, who is really adept at navigating emotions and understanding them and helping other people understand their own emotions. Of course, of course they are. But the vast majority of people that you deal with on a day-to-day basis are not there. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, and, and for Libras, that's going to be, you know, oh, you know, I, I can't, I don't, I don't know who I am if I'm not in a relationship. And every time they get in a relationship, they adopt the identity of whoever they're with and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because they're, they're, it's, it's them not having realized the growth that they need to have or how to get there or whatever. I just think certain people's shitty piss baby versions are a lot less egregious than others. Yeah. Because if you think about it, everybody has their medicine that they bring to the table. What does Leo bring? I have no I'll fucking wait. idea. I'll and wait. I, and Every, the fucking thing is, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of Leos, and I don't know why yeah, that's it keeps like happening. Because that's what All they do. All 11 of the other signs <laughs> have their own specific superpower or medicine or insight or whatever it is that they bring to the table that complements the larger zodiac. What do Leos bring? They're like, we're, they like, we're like attention. We're proud of ourselves. <laughs> we're proud of ourselves. Anybody can be mediocre and proud of themselves and be fucking delusional. That well, doesn't mean that you're special. It just well, means I, that you were born. I always say that I feel, like th- I always feel like the bad rap that Libras get, people are always just describing Leos. I was like, going to say. Like, so I'm always like, I feel like you're mixing up Leos and Libras. Like when people are like, oh, you only like pretty things and you don't like, you yeah. want more, co- you want compliments. I'm like, you're describing Leos, not Libras. Okay. So Libras are point, way harder than that. Actually, While we're throwing eggs at Leos, um, this is one of the main distinctions that uh, I was like making when thinking about Sagittarius Libra is that they both have, a, it's a different from like the, the kind of like empty vanity of a Leo. It's like mm. they're both have an appreciation for opulence, which is very yeah. different from just liking sure. shiny shit. It's like a, yeah. it's like a cerebral like yes. curation of things that you like. And it, yes. it's like, yes, they are nice. But I know like I want to like for the Sagittarius, I feel like it's like I want to tell you a story about how I got all this cool shit that doesn't belong together. Whereas like yeah. the Libra is like by looking at the way this is put together, you can tell how my intelligence works, which I think is yeah. very That's the thing. Different. With a Libra, it's intuitive and it's beautiful because you can see their mind map. 
And with a, so it's internal, again, remember. But with Sag, again, because it's internal, external, both ruled by Jupiter, it's you and Pisces, right? Mm. You guys are always on some eat, pray, love journey of discovery. <laughs> and that is actually really great. And like you, things end up having a lot of meaning because you guys live off of big ideas. And it's the big ideas that like shape society, like law, religion, education, philosophy. Like these are things that, we need and so you guys are really great at tackling those things but it means of course both of you libras and sagittarius not that great at every day-to-day -day detail fine <laughs> you know i'm an aries neither am i i yeah. get it i'm <laughs> moving at the speed of sound for no discernible reason i don't know how to slow down but like you know that's the thing is it's like at least you bring that there's a depth to it whereas oh, yeah if, you, if you're like, well, which sign is probably the original, like, cultural appropriator? I'd be like, yeah, it's going to be Leo. Because they're going to be like, oh, I like it. It's pretty. It's mine it. now. Yeah. And I don't care that I hurt somebody to get it. Yeah, that's going to be Leo. Like, come on. Yeah. Hey, you know, I'm not here to defend Leos, so. I fucking said it. I don't give a shit. If you guys have a problem, get in the goddamn email. Whengodwasqueer.gmail.com. Talk to us on TikTok or Instagram at whengodwasqueer. This is an angry podcast now because y'all just want to fucking act like you can just listen to the podcast and not say, hey, hi, hello, yeah, what's up at any point. Okay. Fucking Until we come Vince, at you. One Vince fan and then that's it. Two, <laughs> two. I thought we oh, were yeah, going to go this week two. without him coming up. But no, it was three. It was, it was three. It was that one of my three. students, one of your friends, my, and then the yeah. person who hit us up on Instagram. Who, there are three people. <laughs> and, people and one stranger of whom two people us. who know the other people in this <laughs> podcast yeah. your friend and one of my students who went i'm so sorry i'm team vince treason hey you know what it is they're leos <laughs> actually my my person is a gemini well i mean maybe they were yeah. lying then no, I no, mean Gemini's are—they are. they don't have a lot of loyalty. They're not. They also might change their mind like once a week. Like I, you know, it, who knows? Well, you know, in, in the animal kingdom, when I think of Gemini's, I think of mockingbirds because they drop their babies off in other birds' nests. <laughs> I can't comment then, on this. You know, I can't comment on this. I'm married to a triple Gemini, and he's like the most loyal, devoted person of all time. But also, I have a weird perception of what that means because I get bored really easily. Also, so mm -hmm. we're we. I think we we sync up. In terms of like lack of loyalty, <laughs> no, it's fine. I think we have a great. lot of loyalty to each other. I'm not really sure what else to. <laughs> but yeah, oh fuck my Leos. God. Just on an emotional Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> rampage. All my friends who are Leos know this about me already, yeah. and I have a lot of them, and they know that they ha they ha happen to have. If a I kept you around sign. and you're a Leo, then you shouldn't. Yeah, it's kind of like when people have say all quality. men are trash. Like if you're offended, yeah. I'm yeah. talking about you. Though. Yeah, if you if you right. catch feelings, we're talking about you. <laughs> exactly. That's the golden rule. That's the golden rule. <laughs> I yeah no. I, I my thing is is I don't really care. I mean, I can't stand to be misrepresented. And so, like, for me, I'm never going to have to defend myself or anybody like me for anything until you blatantly misrepresent something <laughs> and do it. And, and God forbid you do so knowingly to spread misinformation. Yeah. I will level everything you've ever loved. Like, I can't <laughs> deal with it at all. I, 2016 on was really hard. For, or 2014 on, really, was really, really hard for me because I can't. There's something about me cognitively that becomes just violent in the in the face of blatant misinformation and misleading things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I just fucking go crazy and like I can't handle it. <laughs> so yeah. Civil discourse, not my thing when it comes to uh 
to any of that. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't know what any of this has to do with Aphrodite and Venus, but ah, da, 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 da. <laughs> well, no, most of that was about Libra and like talking about. Yeah, I'm excited like, to hear about that, like to, to see that she does have like this kind of like tougher war like yeah. side, because I think that's like one of the things I feel like is not seen about Libra. Like there's like a really all the like ultimate Libra it's people. It's always like, no, earthy, though. It's not fiery. It's earthy, yeah. which is why to me it links to Taurus. Yeah. Like well, when yeah, you think about too. Aphrodite as like the bonds of connection that are not just romantic, but like bind together a community. That's so Libra. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. a, a, the hearth could arguably be, of course, Taurus because there's food. That's but, you know like, also more Taurus because it's like homey and cozy. Right. The <clears> larger <throat> sort of like how a community connects together. So so that's Libra, Libra because yeah. yeah, social. But that warlike thing, that idea of sovereignty, that idea of. Like, here's my thing, don't touch it because I possess it. That's not a very Libra thing. Right. Libras are not super territorial. They're no, not, they're no. like, but t- but Tauruses by nature are. Mm-hmm. And so they're both ruled by Venus. It's the different sides of Venus for sure. Which is why, like, you know, for example, we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about um, Hermes because Hermes is our next episode. What does Mercury rule? Virgo and Gemini, which is literally just like. <laughs> organization and chaos yeah, yeah they're they couldn't <laughs> be know, more dissimilar like, you give them a, just a prompt and you know like one is going to like compartmentalize it and the other one is going to like tear its guts out and decorate the house with it or like paint, set it paint on fire the wall yeah. you know what i mean yeah. like that's it like so but that's you know it's it's a different it's a different way it's a different way of connecting it's a different way of all those things so yeah, and I think even with that, like, that double side thing, I think, like, that's why the image of the beauty and the lion next to each other is so cool. Um, like, the queen and the lion um, mm. is is really cool in the sense that of, That we like, talked about? Yeah. Oh, it was, a like, a war maiden and a lion. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I've just seen, like, uh, in a lot of, like, interpretations sometimes, like, because she's, like, the, I guess, great goddess. Also, I've seen, like, a lot of stuff of, like, confusing which one is Ishtar and Inanna. Um, There's also a lot of, like, retroactive influence of the strength card that gets just, like, infused. Yeah. I was going to say, that just sounds like the strength card. causes a lot of issues, yeah. Shit, yeah. Like, change, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I think, like, even um, just, like, that, even just from the image without knowing anything else. Uh, just says a lot um, uh, in terms of like what and also just like I don't know uh, the whole thing about like the, the planets that we can see and their influence yeah. um, is just like always mind breaking to me um, because mm. it's been going on for so long and we're still doing it um, yeah. like the, the idea of Inanna Ishtar uh, like the Venus goddess um, and like mm. how it crossed so much land like embedded itself in so much culture like pretty arguably permanently like we're again we know this about those cultures it's one of the thing main things we know about those cultures um is like identification through her which i think is sick like in terms of like a genealogy of people of like history uh to have like you know um inanna as like a mother of so many things culturally that happen as a result of us like being alive Mm. i just we don't even have this doesn't even have to go in the episode i do just want to talk about uh babylon for a bit uh hell yeah to like kind of straighten some stuff out because i think what it's starting to the the link not so much that it makes sense but like that i'm starting to kind of be able to trace it backwards 
Because when you were talking about a knot and then a starta and then Asherah, that reminds me of the same way that essentially Babylon is being linked to Ishtar Anana, this idea of uh, why, why she's linked to that in the first place. But then her connection is to Saturn because of like that whole thing about like theoretically on the Sephiroth, Saturn is supposed to be the divine mother or like the divine feminine. Wait, who? Babylon. Oh, like the horror Babylon, like B-A-B-A-L-O-N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so, like, but I think it, there's also a lot of layers there where, like, Babylon is also because of being drawn from Revelation, right? And like having that eschatological connection, the scythe time, right, yeah, things coming to an end is also inevitably gets a layer there too. For like, yeah, yeah Saturn, and it's yeah. like it's yes, yeah, Saturn. It's also like you know thinking about the end in terms of like people's civilizations did actually end, like their worlds did actually end. Yeah. Um, and so, like, thinking about her as, like, a world ender as well as she mm-hmm. conquers these other gods and all these, these other places and, like, pushes, literal pushes gods out of the way or con- ups, consumes them. Hmm. She's a world ender, which is sick as fuck. Because then I think about, like... Babylon? Huh? Babylon or Inanna? Inanna. But then... I was going to say, yeah, there's a lot of parallels there with Inanna doing yeah, that. Yeah, and I think that's... Like, aggressively domain-taking. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's where like that kind of like link is being made not that again not necessarily saying that it's accurate but like that's where that bridge is being made is between babylon and nana and like the the lion and the yeah. whore and all of that um yeah. but then expanding out of that when we started to kind of trace venus down to madonna um or to mary until this having these conversations i didn't realize how cool mary was bro yeah, mary's, mary mary's is awesome magical as fuck so like cool. she is so obviously a goddess it's yeah not even thinly veiled at this point <laughs> yeah I mean, well that's one of the things that is so radical about mary is like it doesn't matter how patriarchal the fucking catholic church is they would never yeah. abandon her no way like no way you have to understand the great schism between catholicism and protestantism that wars were fought over yeah. Like, coups were taken, undertaken, massive amounts of people died because of the fucking breakup of Christianity into Catholicism. And what do you think one of the absolute main, if not the main point of the whole thing was, <laughs> that the Protestants were like, what are you doing? That's yeah. not Christianity. <laughs> yeah. And the Catholics were like, uh, we're, sorry, I can't hear you. I'm pouring fucking molten metal down your throat. What'd yeah, you say? Shut up. Hey, how yeah. about you shut up? How about you take a big <laughs> dose of you shut the fuck up? <laughs> yeah. I mean... That's the thing. They would they would not let go of Mary. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for that one thing. Yeah. Because there are so many of the goddesses we talked about today in her that you can still see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and know? that's what's and that's what the thing too that gets back to me about like the energy being given off by like the planet theoretically because like I think about Venus and like uh Oshun is also like on a, like her day is Friday. She also loves mm-hmm. mirrors. She's also the queen of beauty and love. Like, uh, so it's like, it, from a different, like from a very different part of the world. Like, arguably, like not interacting with, uh, like what's going on in the Mediterranean. But the same right. idea, which I, right. yeah, it's just like that's I don't know. That's fucking cool. <laughs> well, and also the cool thing that Mary brings to the table is that out of all of them, she's the one that's the most associated with the moon. 
Mm. Yeah. Which you don't really have. I mean, she inherited a lot of what the Venusian goddesses had to offer, but then also couldn't necessarily be Venus in that context, right? Mm -hmm. You have a solar god. You have his counterpart, essentially, who's going to be the moon. Because also, don't forget, to effectively demonize what came before you, the morning star and the evening star are tied to who? Lucifer. Yeah. Yeah. So there became this whole thing of like, no, no, no. Bup, 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 bup. Which is also interesting because if you look at the classical seven archangels of the planets, Aniel is the one for Venus and is exclusively portrayed as feminine, like hmm. female feminine, like has breasts feminine, hmm. not like Gabriel feminine, where yeah. Gabriel's like real puss all the time. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's like, okay, decisions were made. And I'd love to get the whole backstory of how we got here, you know? Because there's also so much that later became, like, really official doctrinal canon, like, stuff Mm -hmm. that you realize, like, this was just an artist that did this and maybe nobody was paying attention. Uh. Because because it got replicated for a thousand years, they were like, yep, that's it. That's how that goes. And here's why. We're going to retroactively come up with a story. And you're like, what? Like, so, yeah, I mean... They had an entire, they had multiple ecumenical councils beyond just the Council of Nicaea around the divinity of Mary. Yeah. And that was what also led to the Eastern Orthodox churches coming about. Yeah. Mm. And where they thought she figured in because it was, okay, this was the vessel through which God was able to give birth to himself. What does that mean? Is she a divinity? Is she a deity? What does that mean for us? And the answers that people came up with literally led to the schisms that we know of as breaking up Christianity. Yeah. And arguably Which, being part of the like, Roman Empire is what I have to. Mm-hmm. That makes her pretty well, powerful. I, I 100% am in the camp of like adopting Christianity led to the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for sure. 100%. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, well, all right, guys. Um, I think we've, like, attacked you and done (laughs) enough today. Um, Just wanted to, like, counteract that bullshit post-Renaissance misogynistic two-dimensional naked lady with roses all over her that's cute and cuddly and all about love and bullshit that you've been programmed (laughs) with. Don't forget Venus will fucking throw down. Yeah. Not yeah. Aphrodite. Yeah. Because Aphrodite shows up on a battlefield apparently naked in a conch shell. Like, my yeah, son. Still, still naked looking for her kid. Yeah. And then gets speared and it's like a whole thing. It's a and mess. It's yelled at by Zeus. It's a mess. Yeah, wait. My question is why didn't that guy get punished by Aphrodite for writing that story? Diomedes? No, no, no. The... Oh, no. He did. The, the guy who attacked her absolutely got punished. Yeah, no, 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 he I did. Mean, the, after no, the I, war. Uh, no, I mean, like, the people who wrote these stories down that, like, take away the power from these gods oh. why did they come and just fucking get rid of them? i guess they mysterious died, so. i'm not mysterious gonna lie to you things. there's actual shit like there's conjecture about how you were able to be critical of the gods because veritas or um oh what was what veritas is is roman what was her greek name logos not logos like the god of truth but like the goddess of truth is almost like the fates and like keeps it. You're like, like protected. Oh, so it just yeah. doesn't matter what you say because she's going to be like, oh, that's not true. No, 
No, you're like, allowed to. That you're allowed like, to because if it's true, it's like freedom it's of speech. Oh, freedom of speech. As long as you're not yes. making up slander. As long as it is true. If they did something yeah. shitty, you're allowed to criticize mm-hmm. them. I yeah, but, because there's a difference between not to their face. Maybe <laughs> there's a difference between recounting actions and giving your opinion, which could be hubris of like, well, I'm better than this god, or I'm more beautiful than this goddess. It's like it's not necessarily objectively provable, <laughs> and now you're just playing with your own life. Whereas saying, like, the Trojan War happened and here's the part that everybody played in it. And I'm not going to give that in any way where I characterize whether or not it was good or bad what they did. I guess. You know what I'm saying? Like, then you can call you can call out if people did something. bad. Yeah, because I think I'm mixing my conception of history with like what's happening within the system itself. Yeah. It's also that. Well, because like Homer, Hesiod, all of them, they're never describing the gods. Right. They only describe the gods using the words of other gods. Right. Right. Which is a really interesting yeah. loophole. Oh, uh, that's a loophole. Like every, yeah. Remember everything from our episode last week when they were going off on each other? It's only quoting one god talking about another. Right. It's not, you know, like. You can't. That's not your fault. Using all of these elaborative adjectives about a god as you're describing, like, and he walked onto the battlefield. Like, no, it was like said that, and then the reaction is this, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. Just and then more I think factual. about like early language as well, like in terms of like what you, per, what like what you portray as you write things down. Um, like as language mm. evolves, like we get more nuanced like ideas as a result mm-hmm. of us like being able to use language better. So then like rewinding that and moving backwards, uh, which is not to say that it's like inelegant, but like to move backwards and think about like, well, maybe it's now I'm like kind of questioning myself in, sen- in the sense of like. We can read it these these ways now, but in terms of like how it functions with like the idea of like truth, yeah, is is pretty different. Yeah, I mean for sure, it's uh, yeah. Linguistics are are to me really interesting and also mind breaking and terrifying. Yeah, yeah, because they're so interlinked with cosmology and worldview. It's literal thought form. It's yeah. literal, yes. And so, mm-hmm. like, I was talking with somebody, and I was like, you know, from what I've learned it kind of seems like English is a really hard language to learn for people because English in terms of other languages is like a hoarder. Yeah. Like yeah. we, for any given concept, we have up to 20 words to describe it. And each one has its own, not just, not just denotation, dictionary definition, connotation, what it conjures up, but also like literal layers of usage by certain people at certain times in certain movements in certain pop culture things that further complicates it to where you're constantly implying things whether you mean to or not it's and you're constantly giving people information they're making judgments about you with whether you realize it or not it's a colonialist language like it literally wasn't standardized until like colonies started happening um it's like and and it's it reminds me a lot of like you know the worst parts of christianity in the sense that like all of these holidays and like things that we throw reverence for are just like taken things from places that christianity has conquered Mm -hmm. and then also and some of them are just empty and people try and describe them meaning later on like ostara right ostara is not a goddess it has nothing to do easter has nothing to do with ishtar this has been consistently proven to be historically inaccurate. And every year it comes up again with some self-righteous baby fucking pagan who's like, yeah, that's right, Christianity. And it's like, bro, you have Christmas sitting right here. that You can just, <laughs> you have unlimited fuel on that. And you're going to yeah. waste it on fucking Easter. Like, bro, stop. Yeah. Every, like, what 
Northern Hemisphere culture doesn't have a springtime festival. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just say it's a springtime festival. That's all it is. Like, it's just all the snake boxes, you stupid bitch. Yeah. <laughs> to the point that, like, I'm not even kidding. I saw this, like, goddess oracle deck. There's a fucking card in there for Ostara, the goddess of the spring. Bro, now you have a tulpa on your hands. Good luck. I don't mm. know if she's, like, ne- is she Slenderman? Is she kind of real now? Uh, we yeah. all thought about her. Like, Maybe she's vengeful. I don't know. Like, you know, like, but there's no evidence of this goddess existing. It's like one misprint by somebody like Robert Graves or something like that, where they just sort of try to fill in a blank. And then here we are, how many mm. hundreds of years later, dealing with this fucking bullshit on Facebook memes. Like, no. Precisely why yeah. language is dangerous. <laughs> Very. The worst. Yeah. The worst. All right, y'all. It's time to sign off. It's me, Aphrodite. Hi. <laughs> Hi, y'all. Oh, you look real pretty. Hi. I will be doing the sign off as a weasel. E- oh, God. That sounds aggressive. Okay. okay let's um, do it. Oh, okay. No, we're charging people <laughs> extra for an ASMR channel. We're not just starting out with that. That's going to be Patreon only. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what sounds weasels make other than like little squeaks. And- Probably something awful. I'm guessing. No, they scream. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they probably. Scream. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is what we've got. Uh-huh. Sorry, Be mom. Gay. Sorry, God. We don't know how we got here, but we're stuck with it. So sometimes they're the same person. Yeah, absolutely. In the eyes of a child. Oh, God, there we go. Genetri- All right. Genetrix. There it is. That's it. Be gay. Thanks again for tuning in for another episode of When God Was Queer. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in, and we are so happy to food to do all this stuff. So, doing if you want to reach out to us uh, for any reason, uh, you can shoot us an email whengodwasqueer@gmail.com or Instagram or TikTok at whengodwasqueer. And you can also go to anchor.fm slash whengodwasqueer to leave us a voice note, uh, which is real nifty. <laughs> Uh, and other than that, I think it's time for our cacophony of queerness. And if so here you we go. and if you don't do those things, the gods are watching, so they'll know. Oh yeah, no, I have like candles burning. Yeah, yeah, the several, gods are watching to several goddesses of vengeance to get at <laughs> yeah, the people and who are they not, see you. Yeah, if you don't yeah. do crime and you're not sending okay. us messages, the gods are watching. Honey, I already told you, you want to live your best life. You got to live, <laughs> laugh, love. In lavender, get a lobotomy, shoot a cop, burn a church, mm-hmm. push a priest down the stairs. You got a hail. But like Satan. a mega church, let's just make that distinction. Our yeah, new sign, no. our new sign has sign off has gotten like a lot longer and more complicated. We have to memorize a, this whole thing. Commit a felony, destroy capitalism. Yeah, that one's good. You gotta, yeah. That one's defend a good one. an abortion clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, you also just gotta make sure that you get out there. And you be aggressively homosexual. Yes. <laughs> Definitely that one. I feel like I've morphed into Michael Jackson at this point. I'm like, I was trying to keep away from all the other terrible high pitched voices. That's why yeah. I was yeah. To do it. Hi, y'all. <laughs> it's okay. My that's Aphrodite. Jackson. I like dancing. I call my sister Dunk. Nobody knows why. From Gary, Indiana. So, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to cut out all of that. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Be gay. Be gay. Do crime. Do crime. The gods are the always, gods are always watching. watching. I like to buy y'all. Go see some time later. Goodbye. I made some fat green tomatoes. Goodbye, y'all. Sweet tea. <laughs>
I like that Aphrodite is just southern for some reason. <laughs>